0: Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere. My name is Heather and today we are still wrapping up through the looking glass. I am not ready to put a bow on it. What's that you say? You just stumbled upon this podcast and you've never even read through the looking glass? Maybe you don't even know what a looking glass is? Well, go on back about 15 episodes and listen to the book, chapter by chapter. We'll wait for you to catch up. (sighs) Dumb. I kid, we're not going to wait. We're going to forge ahead to Through the Looking Glass, Chapter 9, entitled Queen Alice. In fact, today is going to be all about queens. Fans of continuity will note we last left off our Looking Glass wrap-up just before Chapter 8. So why am I skipping Chapter 8? Because I'm still not prepared to talk about Wasp in a Wig, the alleged lost chapter of Through the Looking Glass that comes after Chapter 8. I used a thesaurus to come up with alleged. I keep calling it the supposed missing chapter, and I want to shake things up a little bit. Also on the list of supposed synonyms, suppostitious. Suppostitious. Kind of fun to say. Perhaps not as fun to listen to due to my slight speech impediment, but fun to say. You're probably sick of hearing my empty promises regarding Wasp and a Wig. I swear it is coming. This will not be another number 42 You may not even remember, but I promised at one point to talk about why the number 42 was Lewis Carroll's favorite number. It's because he was a huge Jackie Robinson fan. I'm kidding. Lewis Carroll wasn't a Dodgers fan. He liked the Giants. Kidding again. Oh my goodness, the levity. I'm on fire today. Baseball was, of course, invented by Abner Doubleday a good 40 years after Lewis Carroll's death. Apropos of nothing, for almost my entire life, I thought George Washington invented baseball at Valley Forge. And I'm laughing because I have no idea why I thought that. But I was as sure of George Washington inventing baseball as I was that Lincoln freed the slaves and Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. It was an irrefutable historical fact. Only in my head, it turns out. I don't know if I thought he invented it to keep the troops warm during that tough Valley Forge winter. Were they playing with muskets and cannonballs? I don't know. Anyway, I have a good reason for not following up on why number 42 is Lewis Carroll's favorite number. It's because nobody knows why it was his favorite number. At least I could find nothing on the subject. Honestly, I have doubts that it's his favorite number at all. The scant evidence for it being his favorite number seems to center around the King of Hearts referring to Rule 42 during the trial of the Knave of Hearts in the last chapter of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Now, I just thought Lewis Carroll picked a high number so that the King could say it's the first rule in the book and then Alice could say, well, then it should be number one and it's just a good opportunity for her to sass him. Now, there are 42 illustrations in the first publication of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland but I find it hard to believe that was ordered by Lewis Carroll. Like John Tyneal was begging to do a few more pictures and Lewis Carroll was all, nope, 42, no more, no less. Destroy that illustration of Alice falling down the rabbit hole. I won't have it. I actually just ordered the book, Lewis Carroll and His Illustrators, which contains nothing but letters between Lewis Carroll and the aforementioned illustrators, so I'll let you know if I'm wrong, and there is indeed a fiery exchange between Lewis Carroll and John Tenniel regarding the number of illustrations in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, but I kind of doubt it. Now, besides Rule 42, 42 is kind of mentioned in Chapter 2 of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland as well. When Alice is trying to convince herself that she's not Mabel, because Mabel knows, oh, such a very little, she starts reciting the multiplication tables. When she says, let me see, 4 times 5 is 12, and 4 times 6 is 13, and 4 times 7 is, oh dear, I shall never get to 20 at that rate. It's certainly easy to conclude that the math is just coming out all wrong, like when she tries to recite poetry on numerous occasions and that comes out wrong. However... Apparently, 4 times 5 is 12, if you are dealing with base 18. And if you'd like me to explain what base 18 is, I cannot. I was really good at math until about 10th grade, and then my aptitude came to an abrupt halt. So in this instance, I am merely reporting the Wonderland news. I'm not understanding it. So 4 times 5 is 12 in base 18. 4 times 6 is 13 in base 21. So the bases are going up by threes, and if we continue on at that pattern, it works until base 42. Then the pattern breaks down. It's hard to believe that there would be a coincidence involving numbers in any of Lewis Carroll's works since his day job was, you know, a mathematician. So this must have been on purpose. Also, 42 is mentioned in The Hunting of the Snark. Twice. Okay, so maybe Lewis Carroll liked 42 a little more than other numbers, but as far as I know, there's no evidence... Straight from the horse's mouth on the matter. There's nothing in his diaries or anything like that. Unlike his partiality to Tuesday as far as days of the week go. That's another fact that Carolians like to bandy about. But he does actually mention in his diary that a lot of good things happen in his life on Tuesdays. Well, would you look at that? I did talk about the number 42 at length. It wasn't an empty promise after all. And neither is a wasp in a wig, it is coming very soon, but you're probably sick of hearing me say that, so I'm not going to talk about it again until we talk about it, if that makes any sense. How's my pacing today? I noticed when editing the last episode that I was talking much more than a mile a minute. That was the Then She Fell episode when I reviewed the play Then She Fell. I think I was talking so fast because my first draft was 45 minutes long, so I was scared we were going to go way over my self-imposed 25-minute limit, which we did not. Probably because I did not take a breath the entire episode. Also, I forgot to mention that I saw on Twitter that Neil Patrick Harris and Hugh Jackman are fans of Then She Fell. And I thought, how crazy to be one of the actors in Then She Fell. And you're setting up your tea party scene or perhaps painting some roses red. And you look across the table and there's Hugh Jackman. Ah! I would die. Hey, let's talk about queens. Who are heavily featured in Chapter 9 of Through the Looking Glass, entitled Queen Alice. I'd like to review what Lewis Carroll himself thought of his queenly creations. I've quoted this article in Bits and Pieces before. This is from Alice on Stage, which Lewis Carroll wrote in 1887 as a sort of response to seeing his works on the stage. I'm going to throw in his words on the Queen of Hearts from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland as well. Just because the Red Queen and the Queen of Hearts tend to get confused in people's minds and in adaptations. I mean, not in our minds. We totally know the difference because we're super knowledgeable and cool and we know our wonderland from our looking glass, but it's still interesting to hear Lewis Carroll compare them side by side. I cannot hope to be allowed, even by the courteous editor of the theater, half the space I should need, even if my reader's patience would hold out, to discuss each of my puppets one by one. Let me cull from the two books a royal trio, the Queen of Hearts, the Red Queen, and the White Queen. It was certainly hard on my muse to expect her to sing of three queens within such brief compass, and yet to give to each her own individuality. Each, of course, had to preserve, through all her eccentricities, a certain queenly dignity. That was essential. And for distinguishing traits, I pictured to myself the Queen of Hearts as a sort of embodiment of ungovernable passion, a blind and aimless fury. The Red Queen must be cold and calm. She must be formal and strict, yet not unkindly pedantic to the tenth degree, the concentrated essence of all governesses. Lastly, the White Queen seemed, to my dreaming fancy, gentle, stupid, fat, and pale, helpless as an infant, and with a slow, maundering, bewildered air about her, just suggesting imbecility, but never quite passing into it. That would be, I think, fatal to any comic effect she might otherwise produce. There is a character strangely like her in Wilkie Collins' novel No Name. By two different converging paths, we have somehow reached the same ideal, and Mrs. Ragg and the White Queen might have been twin sisters. Except that my White Queen has a weird habit of periodically turning into a sheep. Okay, that last sentence was mine, not Lewis Carroll's. (laughs) I guess Wilkie Collins' book didn't quite stand the test of time like our Alice books, huh? I am not familiar with Mrs. Ragg. That's spelled W-R-A-G-G for those keeping score at home. I find it so curious that both the Red Queen and White Queen get the short end of the scepter when it comes to dramatic adaptations of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, especially when Lewis Carroll went to so much trouble to make them different. The most recent example, of course, being the 2010 Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland movie and its sequel, Alice Through the Looking Glass, which came out this past summer. In those movies, Helena Bonham Carter, well, she pretty much is the Queen of Hearts. She says off with her head a bunch, got a little something-something going on with the name of Hearts. Yet, she's called the Red Queen. They give her a first name, too, Erasibus, a turn of phrase I think Lewis Carroll would have appreciated. So she's a combination of two very different characters. Anne Hathaway's the White Queen isn't a combo, but she's nothing like the White Queen from the books, right? The real White Queen could never pull off that lipstick, first of all. be a mess. I can't really figure out the White Queen from the Tim Burton movies, honestly. She's nuts, definitely, but nothing like the book. You know what's funny is I keep saying the queens get slighted in so many adaptations, but at least they're present. The kings aren't even around. They're completely absent. But guess what, guys? I just saw a movie that is an exception to the Looking Glass rules. Like the movie from this summer, it is called Alice Through the Looking Glass. I guess producers feel the need to put the word Alice in there so people don't get confused and think, Someone else is going through a looking glass? I don't know. This Alice Through the Looking Glass was a TV movie on Channel 4 in Great Britain from 1998. And the great news is, it is available in its entirety for free on YouTube. It stars Kate Beckinsale. And if you are thinking, wait a minute, wasn't Kate Beckinsale a fully grown adult in 1998? Yes, she was. She was 25 at the time. But she plays a mother who falls asleep reading Through the Looking Glass to her daughter and then goes through the looking glass herself. Aside from this parental twist, this movie has got to be the most faithful, accurate adaptation of either Alice book I have ever seen. Let that sink in for a minute. That's a pretty heady statement. Once Kate, or Alice, we'll call her Alice, goes through the looking glass, I believe every single line of dialogue is from the actual book. Every line. That doesn't mean every line is included, several scenes are much shorter in the movie and a few are excised altogether, but every line that is present is from the book. I was reciting almost every line along with Alice, which I don't recommend doing in mixed company. And by mixed company, I mean any company, any any people at all. That would get really, really old quick. The only liberty they take is once or twice there appears to be an unseen Jabberwocky chasing her. The Jabberwocky poem is so wonderful. I totally understand filmmakers wanting to add a living, breathing Jabberwocky so often. A highlight from this TV movie, the Garden of Live Flowers is portrayed by models, which is a very clever idea, I thought. It really heightens the feeling of condescension and haughtiness, having these gorgeous snooty women tower over Kate Beckinsale. Kate herself is lovely, as always, of course. I found a few things about her appearance a little distracting. For one thing, her hair looks like when you have dark brown hair, and you're really trying to turn it blonde, but it's not quite there yet. And yes, I'm speaking from experience. The second thing I couldn't stop staring at, her lipstick, because it was just so 90s. It's that brown color that was really popular. Again, I speak from experience. I wore sandalwood by Revlon, I believe for the entire decade myself. And I'm talking about lipstick twice in one episode, which is weird. The third thing about her appearance, and I kind of buried the lead here, she's pregnant, which she's playing a mother, so there's no reason why she can't be pregnant. But I don't think she's playing pregnant. I think they're trying to hide it. But adding a billion petticoats actually does the opposite. It really accentuates it. Lest you think I am a superficial jerk who is solely judging Kate Beckinsale on her appearance, let me stress that her performance was wonderful. She managed a very tricky balance. She's effectively playing a child, but she's not acting like one, if that makes any sense. Often adults playing kids in movies is really freaking annoying, but all the words coming out of Kate's mouth sound completely natural, and she is just a delight to watch, despite the sandalwood lipstick. I absolutely loved seeing the illustration for the train journey brought to life. It gave me the shivers. Other clever touches. When a character was an animal or insect or object, there would be one shot of the animal or insect. Then the next shot would be the human actor playing them. Which worked really well because then you didn't get the problem of trying to take someone seriously who's wearing a giant egg suit, for example. Or a giant wasp suit. What? That's right, this movie includes a wasp in a wig. I said I wasn't going to talk about it again, but I have to because it's in this movie. Ah. The exception of the human representation of creatures was Hare or March Hare, who was played by a shadow, which was super cool. Another of my favorite things about this adaptation, when someone would be reciting a poem, there would be a neat little film accompanying it, such as Haddock's Eyes, read by the White Knight. It's like a little black and white Buster Keaton film almost accompanying it. And the film going along with The Walrus and the Carpenter by the Tweedles was like some crazy hippie interlude. It reminded me of Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles. And sure enough, at one point, they randomly holed up an album by the Beatles, so I think maybe that was intentional. The Tweedles were absolutely fantastic. They really treaded the line between hilarious and creepy and the actors, neither whose names I recognize, were just brilliant. The only thing I didn't like about this movie, aside from the brown lipstick, was what they left out. The entire lion and unicorn scene is gone, which honestly wouldn't bother me that much, except that means there's no Hatter! That's Hatter's only scene. They do give him a cameo, serving the joint at the dinner party scene later on, at least. And the really egregious exception, in my opinion, there's no boat scene. The White Queen briefly turns into a sheep, but there's no boat ride. No scented rushes. No little goose. I found this to be especially painful because, as you all know, a boat ride with the real Alice is what helped inspire the Alice books. So that hurt a little bit. I mentioned I watched this on YouTube. I'm quite certain nothing was edited out. It appears to be the whole movie. It'd be lovely if I'm wrong, and if you saw it originally on TV, you'd get the boat ride scene, but I don't think so. You may recognize some other actors from this adaptation, such as the Nat played by a young Steve Coogan. But the only other really big star besides Kate Beckinsale is Ian Holm as the White Knight. You probably know Ian Holm from the Lord of the Rings movies and about a 100 billion other roles. The White Knight episode in the movie is, frankly, a little long, just like in the book. The queens are played by Penelope Wilton and Cian Phillips. Penelope Wilton, the White Queen, you may know from Downton Abbey, and the Red Queen, Cian Phillips, played the Reverend Mother in Dune. The Red Queen could not be more perfect. She is exactly like I imagined her. The White Queen is a little more batty than dithering. I don't know if that's enough of a distinction. Let's say she's more nutso than absent-minded. You know who my favorite White Queen of all time is? This is kind of my dirty little secret. I absolutely love the two-part Alice TV movie that was on CBS in 1985. I think that production is widely considered to be just awful, but it was crucial to me during my formative years. We had just gotten our first VCR and I taped it and I think I may have actually worn out a VHS tape from watching it so much. For those of you who haven't seen it, there is simply a cavalcade of shining stars and also stars who had maybe faded a little bit in this movie. Sammy Davis Jr. as a Caterpillar, Martha Ray as the Duchess, Red Buttons as the White Rabbit, Jonathan Winters is Humpty Dumpty, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet as Tweedledee and Tweedledum, Telly Savalas is the treasure cat. The list goes on and on. The Red Queen was played by Angelian, and frankly, she did not leave much of an impression on me. But the White Queen. The White Queen was Carol Channing. Oh my goodness. If you are somehow unfamiliar... Ms. Channing originated the role of Hello, Dolly! on Broadway, among many other accomplishments, and she is blessed with one of the most unique voices in the history of entertainment. I'm going to leave you today with some audio of Carol Channing as the White Queen. I got this off YouTube, and the person who posted it titled it, Carol Channing is Better Than You. And the entire description for the video is, Carol Channing gives the greatest acting performance of all time in this scene from the 1985 TV movie of Alice in Wonderland. She truly was the most dithering, silly, absent minded white queen that ever was. Please enjoy.
1: Oh, it's somebody's Bread
2: and butter, bread and butter, bread and butter, my show, where's my bread and butter, baby? Oh, thank you, I've been looking for that. Then I'm very glad
1: I happened to be in the way. Bread and butter,
2: bread and butter, bread and butter. What?
1: Am I dressing the White Queen?
2: Well, yes, if you can call that a... Dressing, it's not my notion of the thing at all.
1: If your majesty would only tell me the right way to begin, I'll do it as well as I can. May I help put your shawl on straight for you?
2: Please. It's out of temper, I think. It's in a snit. It's peevish. It's having a fit. I've pinned it here, and I've pinned it there. There's no pleasing it.
1: Well, you look better now. But really, you should have a lady's maid.
2: I'll take you with pleasure. Tuppence a week, and jam every other day.
1: I don't want you to hire me, and I don't care for jam.
2: Well, it's very good jam. Well, I don't want any today, at any rate. You couldn't have it if you did want it. The rule is... Jam tomorrow, jam yesterday, but never jam today. It must come sometimes to jam today. No, it can't. It's jam every other day. Today isn't any other day, you know. Jam tomorrow, jam yesterday, but never ever jam today. I said jam tomorrow, jam yesterday, but never ever jam today. You can you want, you can want as you wish. Still you better hear me say, jam tomorrow jam yesterday, but never ever jam today. Not ashamed of mama made, not a nor honey for love nor money. never ever jam today. Oh, you can lose as you want, you can want as you hear me say Jam tomorrow jam yesterday But never ever jam to the it's
1: Stressfully confusing.
2: Well, that's the effect of living backwards. It makes everyone a little giddy at first. But... There's one great advantage. The memory works both ways. Well,
1: I'm sure mine only works one way. I can't remember things before they happen.
2: That's well, a poor sort of memory only works backwards. What
1: sort of things do you remember best?
2: Things that happened the week after next. Ah! My finger's bleeding. Ah!
1: What happened? Have you stuck your finger?
2: Well, I haven't stuck it yet, but I soon shall.
1: Ah! When do you expect to do it?
2: When I fasten my shawl again. The brooch will come undone directly.
1: Be careful, you're holding it all crooked.
2: See? That accounts for the bleeding. Now you understand the way things happen here. How old are you? Seven and a half exactly. I'm just one hundred and one. I can't believe that. You can't?
1: I hope your finger's better now.
2: Better. Much better.
0: Oh, hey, did I neglect to mention that the 1985 TV movie is a musical? <laughs> because it's a musical. Don't judge me. It's very worth it to look this up on YouTube so that you may witness the apoplectic dance moves that accompany this tour de force performance. Thanks for listening to Carol Channing and to me, everybody. Don't forget to check out the Alice's Everywhere blog or say hello on social media. Talk soon. Jam tomorrow, jam yesterday, but never ever jam today. Jam tomorrow, jam yesterday, but never ever jam today.